Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and global affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Wednesday, the 8th of March. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. On Tuesday, hundreds of thousands of people across a variety of sectors took to the streets to protest Emmanuel Macron's attempts to raise the retirement age. The only solution they find in France when there isn't enough money is to ask employees to work longer. We discuss the implications of the widespread industrial action. And then we check in on China's annual parliamentary session, where Beijing has issued an unusually direct criticism of the United States. If the United States does not hit the brakes but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing or a crash, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. We also take a listener's question on the latest in Iran's uprisings. If you're a listener of World Review and have a question for us, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets in France on Tuesday in protest at President Emmanuel Macron's plans to raise the retirement age. Workers in sectors across the economy, including education, transport, energy, and waste, stopped work in the largest day of strike since Macron first proposed the reform. The president has said he won't back down, however, raising the prospect of an escalating struggle. Ido, naturally, I want to start with you here, as you've written about Macron's push to raise the retirement age for the new statesman. Why don't you give us the background of this policy change and how it's been received? Emmanuel Macron, since he came to power in 2017 for his first term, has always presented himself as 
a modernizer, someone who wants to reform France's famously bloated public sector and kind of make it a bit more of a business-friendly country. And a big part of that is France's social security system, which by OECD and European standards is unbelievably generous. So France, for example, I think has one of the lowest retirement ages of any country in the OECD, and it spends 14.5% of its GDP on pensions, which is the third highest in the OECD. And so Macron's plans to reform the retirement system, he'd proposed them for a while, but um, they were shelved because of the COVID pandemic. And finally, at the end of last year, he finally announced that he was going forward with it and announced that he wanted to reform certain measures. The main one is that he wants to push the age of retirement back two years from 62 to 64. He also wants to increase the number of years that you need to work before you are allowed a state pension and some other measures. As always happens with proposals to reform the pension system, this prompted a huge opposition from the left-wing opposition, pretty much the entire political opposition, actually, from the far right to the far left. And unions have come out onto the streets for days of demonstrations and strike action, of which Tuesday, so the 7th of March, was possibly the single largest day. So there were hundreds of thousands of workers in sectors as diverse as education, transport, aviation, energy and waste all stopped work in an attempt to try and get the government to back down and to show that the unions will not back down until the government withdraws this proposal. And what is the likelihood that will happen? It's very high stakes for both sides. Both sides have said that they will not back down. So Macron has said that he will not withdraw the reform because if he were to withdraw the reform, obviously his plan for modernizing the state as he sees it would be severely compromised for the rest of his term. And obviously he's only one year into his five-year term. So clearly a lot of the political capital that he has as a kind of reformist would be spent and he would have a lot less authority. But at the same time, he does have some difficulties in terms of trying to pass it in Parliament. So he doesn't have a parliamentary majority because his party lost its majority in Parliament at last year's legislative elections. And so he's had to rely mostly on votes from the smaller centre-right Republican Party to pass this reform. And it's not yet clear whether they will completely play along. In fact, they've been trying to gain some concessions from his party in exchange for their votes. And the kind of nuclear option is that he would use a measure in the constitution called Article 49.3, which allows the government to pass bills without a vote in exchange for a vote of confidence in the government as a whole, which if it fails, parliament has to go to new elections. But that's obviously an incredibly high risk strategy. If there were new elections could result in the president's party suffering an even worse result, potentially for the benefit of the far right national rally party. And also... Obviously, if the bill were passed without a vote, it would create a massive problem of democratic legitimacy for this, obviously, very consequential reform, which affects pretty much everyone in France, I think. But of course, on the other side, there's the reason that we've had the apparently the biggest day of strikes so far is that this is a touchstone issue for the left. This relatively early retirement, these relatively good conditions are a kind of touchstone issue for the French left. It's a real kind of point of prize. The retirement age was lowered, I think, by Mitterrand in the 1980s. And since then, France has had this kind of very generous system, which a lot of French people are, are very attached to. And conversely, just as the stakes are very high for Macron, the stakes are also very high for the left because Macron has a f another four years in office. And this is not the end of his ambitions for liberalizing the state, probably trimming back some of France's generous social 
security benefits. And so if he passes this, he will probably be emboldened to try more as the left sees it. And of course, in, in the future, looking to the next uh, presidential election, then of course, if a right-wing candidate were to win, then they would probably also try to further trim down France's social security net. So the stakes are very high, and that's the reason why the dispute seems to be escalating. I'm really curious about, I guess, how the other parties are forming their message around this debate. So obviously, it's in the left's interest that the reforms don't pass. Have they seen any kind of popularity bump in polls or anything with this controversy? The reform is unpopular. Most French people are opposed to it, according to polls, and most people have a negative impression of it. And I think the left-wing parties poll better than, than the reform, but if there's no election coming up. We've already had an election and polls at this point in terms of the kind of material balance of power and relationships of power are quite, quite limited. And so what really matters is on the left, the ability to mobilize and to retain public support, and even through these strikes, which obviously affect people's lives livelihoods and inconvenience people quite significantly and have quite severe economic costs. The strikes that happened on Tuesday were across the economy, kind of oil refineries, ports, like loads and loads of different sectors. And the unions have promised that they will continue striking. So they're trying to really get the government to back down with the threat of bringing the country to a standstill on a more or less indefinite basis. And of course, the bet on the left for issues like this has always been that the streets in France are more relevant than the parliamentary opposition, which I think at this point is probably true. Like clearly at, at this point, the parliamentary opposition in parliament or the political opposition in parliament on the left is not the most significant factor. The left is far more relevant on the streets and that's really what they're going to be struggling to to maintain over as these strikes escalate and perhaps people start asking what the point of them is. So if they were to come to an impasse and the strikes were ongoing and it, they continue to be severely disruptive. If you were a betting man, which side would you think would back down first? I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to bet on which side will give in. I mean, Macron has more options open to him. He can pass this with the 49-3 if he really wants to. He can use the 49-3 and pass this without a vote, and then the law will be passed. And then there's a vote of confidence, which maybe the ruling party loses, and then there are like theoretically parliamentary elections. That is a very high stakes bet for the government, but it's one that the government can take. By contrast, obviously, the parliamentary and extra-parliamentary opposition have less options open to them because they don't have that power in them. And again, the stakes are very high. If Macron loses this struggle, then this is the highest stakes struggle that he's had for, for his kind of agenda, for his vision of France since he became elected. And he's got another four years in his second term. If he fails to pass this, that means that his economic agenda is hobbled. He doesn't have a parliamentary majority. He's got very little political capital because the kind of signature measure has been defeated. In the absolute worst case scenario for him, he loses a parliamentary election and he has a prime minister from another party. The stakes are very high for him, which is why I think both sides will stick this out until the end. It's possible that there could be compromises, that the government could compromise on, on, on some of the measures and make this reform a bit less drastic. But I don't think either side are going to back down without a fight. Can I ask, what are the stakes for the country more broadly if there isn't compromise or some form of reform here? How sustainable is the current arrangement without raising the pension age, for instance? 
So there's a lot of debate about this. The left says that you could pay for the current pension system by having a tax on what they call super profits. So I think these are the profits are the kind of windfalls that energy companies have enjoyed as a result of higher energy prices over the past year, maybe raising taxes on the wealthy, things like that. But by contrast, the kind of the right Macron's party say that, says that this is un, unaffordable. France already spends almost the highest proportion of GDP on pensions in the OECD and France's population Asia, which is something that you've covered, Casey. This is a problem across the world, but of course, when you have a more generous pension system, then the proportional spend is higher. And this is something that's going to be phased in. So it's not just going to go from 62 to 64 kind of overnight. And I think it's by 2030 or get to 64, something like that. But, you know, if you don't start making changes now, then France is going to head into the wall and suddenly we'll have a pension system, which is completely unaffordable. I'm not an economist. I really think I'm qualified to or capable of taking a decision here. I mean, I do think that there is something good in this system and that it is actually, I think, what French people get, which like, for example, in the Anglo-Saxon world, we maybe don't, is that there is a bit more to life than work. And I think having an early retirement age when it's quite common for French people when they retire, obviously at 62 or 60 or so, you're pretty, you're still pretty chipper. And it's pretty common for people to have a bit of a sort of gap year and go and travel. And while they're still relatively, um, relatively lively, and I look at for example, the UK where I'm from, where the pension age is much higher and you can't really expect to do something like that. And I do think maybe it is a good thing that in France, people consider that there's a bit more to work and a bit more to the, than just a kind of raw numbers and red and black and so on. But then I think my own retirement is so long away that I have difficulty imagining that I'm going to retire before 75 or something. So We're um, never retiring you. That's uh, the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I. in short, that's just my kind of my own view. I don't think I'm qualified to say whether it's sustainable or not. But it is true that France spends a lot of money on pensions. And as the population ages, that's only going to increase. I'm curious, what's Le Pen and the far right's messaging on the issue? So the Le Pen and the National Rally, they've had a kind of mixed message on, on the retirement reform. Historically, the RN has been a an economically liberal party, which has supported lower taxes and lower welfare and things like that. But Le Pen's policy, really since she headed the party, has been to have this kind of relatively sort of welfareist economic policy combined with a very hard line on immigration and identity. And obviously opposing retirement reform would fit in with that kind of politics. But they have in the past supported higher retirement age. And at the moment, they seem to be stuck between that kind of head, as it were, which a lot of figures in the party seem to be resigned to the idea that the retirement age should be raised. And obviously opposition from a lot of their often working class, often formerly left-wing voting electoral base, which is opposed to the reform. So as I mentioned, Ido, you've obviously written about the pension reform before, so we'll link to your pieces in the show notes below. Now we turn to China, where the country's leadership has gathered for its annual parliamentary session known as the National People's Congress. The assembled delegates attending the meetings will nominally consider changes to legislation and government policies. At the Congress, Xi Jinping has already made an uncharacteristically direct attack on the U.S., saying on Tuesday that... Western countries, led by the U.S., have implemented all-around containment, encirclement, and suppression against us, bringing unprecedentedly severe challenges to our country's development. So, Katie, why don't we start by you just giving us some background on what one 
would usually expect from China's annual parliamentary sessions. So this is really two meetings happening simultaneously. They're known collectively as the two sessions in China, which is the NPC, which is the National People's Congress, the annual parliamentary session, and the CPCC, which is, I'm going to forget the acronym, I think the Chinese People's Political Consultative Committee. Listeners, please correct me if I've got that wrong. This is generally described as a rubber stamp parliament. And that's fair. This is not a parliament in a democratic sense, in the sense that it has the MPC certainly has never voted down a bill or a budget. And generally what you see is measures being passed with sort of 2,991 votes for three abstained. So that's the kind of procedural side of the MPC. But it still is a forum that can be relatively significant. And I think we're already seeing that this year. So this year, there's kind of two key things to watch from it. One is this is where you get the government appointments. So China's political system has this sort of parallel branches of party and state bureaucracy. Xi Jinping sits at the top of both and has three titles, um, forgive me if this is very boring, but he is general secretary of the Communist Party, chairman of the Central Military Commission, which are the sort of party side appointments. And then he's also president of China, which is his state position. When he removed term limits in 2018, those were on the presidency, which was the only one of those top three roles that had any sort of term limit. He laid the groundwork back then to begin what over the course of this session will be his third term. There's an election for China's president, but it's really only only an election in the most vacuous sense of that word. He will be confirmed as China's president. So this is the sort of final act of the power grab that started at the party congress in October as he now moves into a third term in all of these positions. And as part of that, he's also elevating really his own loyalists. The new Politburo standing committee, when they walked out at the end of the Congress in October, there was a sort of collective gasp from China analysts, because this is frankly how exciting our world is, to see the six men who walked out behind him and see these are all his allies. You can't look at that group of people and say, okay, he's genuinely encouraging some sort of debate within the top leadership. He's looking to promote different types of voices, different positions. No, he is looking to promote his own loyalists, people he knows very, very well, and people he trusts. So it was seen as a real power grab in that sense. During the MPC, they will find out which government jobs they get, and lightly the most important of which is the premier of China, which has been until now Li Keqiang, who came to power through a different faction than Xi Jinping. You know, a decade ago, he was seen as somebody who could potentially be a future leader of China, and there has been this repeated wishful thinking over in recent years that maybe Li is pushing back against some of Xi's policies. Maybe he represents some sort of elite descent to Xi Jinping's power. That will end with his presidency, which culminates at this NPC, and the guy who's going to almost certainly get that job is Li Chang, who's the former party boss of Shanghai and a very close associate of Xi Jinping. He's known him for the better part of two decades. We should see this in terms of the personnel as really being this sort of consolidation of Xi Jinping loyalists. And then the other part of this is the policies. So the NPC is where you get the sort of economic plan for the year ahead. You get the growth target, which we've already seen set at around 5% of GDP growth which is low by China's standards, 
but which is thought to be fairly realistic given the challenges that China's economy is currently facing. Growth last year is thought to actually have been closer to 3%. So I think it shows you a certain degree of wariness about how quickly China's economy is going to be able to rebound and what the path ahead is. And we're also likely to see a further consolidation of party control over the private sector. We're already starting to see some of that. We've had Xi Jinping in, in remarks over the last couple of days talking about the importance of private sector companies being patriotic, thinking about his agenda of common prosperity, essentially the argument being that they should think more about the public sector than private enterprise. People who are much better economists than me would say that's not a great way to um, generate growth in the private sector by saying you essentially need to think and act like a public company and you need to remember your commitment to China, and you potentially need to submit to greater control for the party. So you get to see at this Congress how China sees the path ahead. But I think what we're seeing so far is really Xi laying out a solution that relies on greater central control, more of his own people rising to the top. And if he's wrong about that, then what you could say that what he's actually doing is just doubling down on his existing mistakes, centralizing control, building a much greater echo chamber around himself and removing the last people who could have said, no, I think you're wrong. I think this is the wrong track. So I would argue, I think that is what we're seeing over the course of these MPC. And we've also seen, as, as you mentioned in the introduction there, these really unusually direct attacks on the United States. Generally, when she talks in public or in forums that he thinks are going to be quoted from, he doesn't mention the US by name. He normally says things like certain countries, or he talks in really opaque terms about you know dangerous storms, forces in the world. This was him saying very clearly, we think the US is implementing a policy of containment against us, and not just the US. This was Western countries led by the US. So I think the tone that he is setting for this Congress is there are really serious challenges ahead. And this is who we blame for it. So I think going back to the initial question about this is generally seen as a rubber stamp ceremonial exercise, but I think there is real substance and there are really important issues being discussed during this year's Congress. You touched on it there, Katie, but I just want to unpack and make sure I have this right. So obviously he's mentioning the U.S., directly, which is quite unusual. How much of that is meant as a message to the US and or to the West? And how much of that is a domestic message to maybe distract or, as you said, like shift blame for the low economy growth to a real external enemy? I think it's somewhat of both. I think you need to see it also in the context of Chin Gang, the foreign minister's remarks earlier today as we're recording this. He was warning very explicitly that if the US doesn't change course, if it, quote, continues to barrel down the wrong track, no amount of guardrails can prevent the carriage from derailing and crashing, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. He is warning in very clear terms, as is she, that China now sees the US as essentially locked in this sort of inexorable march towards confrontation with China. And so that it's not just a matter of building guardrails, which I think that the language he used was very deliberate because that's the language that the Biden administration uses about China. And when the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was due to go to China before the Great Balloon Incident, part of the mission of that visit was to help build these strategic guardrails to keep the ability to, for instance, have good high-level crisis communications between the two powers. Ching Gang's argument is that is not enough. We don't just need to 
put guardrails around the relationship, you need to fundamentally alter course or this is heading towards a collision. So I think there is a message in what she and Chin are saying here is, you know, really flashing bright red warning lights of this is heading in a very dangerous direction and we're not going to blink first, so you need to. So there's a sort of brinkmanship element of it diplomatically. And I think there is an important message that is aimed both at the domestic audience and at third countries of it is not China that is to blame for this. It is the US that is doing this. So all of the difficulties that you see, for instance, with China's economic growth, that's not our fault. It's not the fault of my Xi Jinping's bad policies and pandemic controls. That's because the US is bent on stopping China's rise. So certainly there's somewhat of both to it. But I think the main point to take away from this is this is the clearest, most explicit warning I have heard from Xi Jinping. And it's aimed not just at the US. It's also aimed at US allies around the world, including in Europe. So I think it's quite significant that he's now issuing that warning in these terms. It's not a surprise. We have long thought, I've probably said on this podcast a million times, the view from the Chinese leadership is that China is now locked in this sort of Cold War type struggle with the United States. But now we hear it in Xi Jinping's own words. So I think that's interesting and it's significant. One last question before we move on. How do you think these statements are being received in Washington? There is a danger that both sides are spiraling. Here in the US, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the formation of the China Select Committee, which is this very sort of rare bipartisan committee, which has been formed to to look at competition with China, and which is really, frankly, difficult to watch. They held a kickoff hearing in primetime where it was really a kind of around the room who could be toughest on China, who could demonstrate their, you know, we believe in American greatness most strongly. It looked somewhat ridiculous um, because there, there are very serious challenges for the US in competition with China. But this sort of collective hawking each other, just it seemed hysterical, unserious. And I think there is a danger that when you have these sort of statements from China, that really just fuels, you know, the next China Select Committee hearing can say, Xi Jinping now says, this is all around containment. Qing Gang says we're heading towards conflict and confrontation. China sees this as a Cold War contest. So we need to act as though we're in a we're in a Cold War. So there is a danger that both sides are feeding each other. And I think there are no real signs that either side, especially now that Xi Jinping is publicly, or at least making these statements at this forum, there's no real sign that either side intends to back down. So to go back to sort of Ido's setup of this kind of zero-sum I win, you lose. That's the sort of framing that is being brought to this by both sides now. So I think that's worrying. And I think you're seeing the the where there could have been areas for common ground, really that ground is crumbling. That's getting a much harder argument to make. So I think it, definitely some element of this is aimed at intimidation, is aimed at ma- making very clearly making very clear to the US, you need to change course. So we shouldn't buy wholesale into those threats. But I think we do need to see this in the context of that sort of spiral of contest and of national narratives, which at the moment is leading in a very troubling direction. 
you've touched on the subject of a whole host of pieces that you've written in the past for us. So if anyone is interested in a very thorough background, we have lots of pieces for you to read The New Statesman, which of course we'll provide links to. But yeah, we'll be watching the rest of the parliamentary sessions as they go on. There's what, six more days, Katie? Seven more days? Yeah, it ends next Monday. Next Monday. Okay. So So there's plenty to get excited about. Strap in. Can't wait. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host The New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But for now, we're going to turn to a section where we hear from you. And we like to call this You You Ask Us. A listener asks, will the toxic chemical attacks against Iranian schoolgirls quell the unrest in the country? So for anyone who hasn't 
been following this story since about November, more than a thousand schoolgirls have been suffering from suspected toxic chemical attacks in Iran, with hundreds of girls being hospitalized now experiencing respiratory, cardiac, and neurological symptoms. So these are suspected poisonings, and they were first reported in November in the holy city of, which is southwest of Tehran, I believe. And since then, students have reported headaches, nausea, heart palpitations, symptoms like asthma attacks while they've been at school. There haven't been any fatalities, but authorities have said that there have been at least 52 schools across 10 cities that have been targeted. So there are broadly three main theories about what's behind these attacks. It took Iranian officials quite a while to initially address them. But since the majority of the attacks have happened just within the last few weeks, there's been a lot of public outrage. So they've been forced to acknowledge them. And many officials have seemingly been blaming religious extremist groups, saying that these groups are trying to intimidate girls from getting an education, trying to keep them out of school, trying to keep them out of public, which is quite alarming because although Iran is a Islamic Republic, there haven't really been any formal restrictions or large pushes to keep girls out of education. That is what broadly the regime has been blaming. Whereas a lot of independent journalists and activists who have been involved in the anti-regime uprising that's been happening since September have said that they suspect it's actually a coordinated punishment attack against girls who have been leading and been really the face of the demonstrations, and that it's the work of the regime itself. And then there's this third theory, which suggests that a portion of the poisonings are actually the result of something called mass sociogenic illness, which is not to say it's not real, but that they're not really suffering, but that their real symptoms are the cause of a psychological trigger like anxiety, which one might feel in a very oppressive regime, rather than actually being poisoned by a physical toxin. So there is a lot of conflicting theories. Studying this from outside the country is very difficult because of the huge repression on journalism and reporting within the country. One of the leading journalists from OM who is looking into the poisonings, he's been arrested in recent days. So that does cast a lot of suspicion on the regime itself. And the regime, it's not really known to take a proactive stance in investigating violence or attacks on women in general. So there isn't a lot of faith that they will do an exhaustive investigation, even though publicly there has been in recent days quite quite a few statements to that effect. I And I wrote a piece about this this week for the World Review newsletter, which listeners can sign up to at newsitesmedia.com if they would like to get it free in their inbox every Monday. But I made the point that if whatever is behind these poisonings, if the intention is to quell unrest and to intimidate girls and women from taking part, so far that seems to have backfired as it's really only increased public anger. And over this past weekend, we saw dozens of protests of parents of schoolgirls who are angry about how the authorities have worked to address the the scale of this incident so far, and those quickly escalated into broader anti-regime protests. So to answer listeners' questions, no, I don't think this will work to quell the uprising. And if anything, it could spur and reinforce a lot of grievances that people already had. 
Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. A reminder, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash youaskus or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when I'll be speaking to Jade McGlynn about Russian propaganda and the war against Ukraine. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. It really does help. Our producer today has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.